I'm glad that the Lord led me to begin this series back in the early days of the summer so that all of our young people could be here for almost all of it. And we come now to the very last message and, of course, chapter Revelation 22. This was never intended to be a verse-by-verse study of Revelation. We've done that in the past, of course, but an overview that I think we need at this time. Verse 1 says, And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. What a contrast, by the way, to all of the smoke and the brimstone, the fire and the darkness and the locusts. Now it's beauty. In the midst of the street of it and on either side of the river was of the tree of life, which bare 12 manner of fruits and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations and there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it and his servants shall serve him. Father in heaven, please help us tonight now to focus our hearts and minds on your word and whatever distractions, whatever is between us and you, Father, please help us. Help us to hear what the Spirit says to this church now in Jesus' name, amen. Well, it was in the very first study here in the book of Revelation that we noted in the very first chapter of the book of Revelation that God promises a very special blessing on those who read, who hear, and who keep the things that are written herein. Blessed is he, it says in chapter 1, who does those three things with this book. Now, that's interesting, but the question is, how is it that reading and knowing about demon locusts and hail with fire and worldwide deception and the mark of the beast and Armageddon and all of it How in the world is that such a promise of blessing? What is the blessedness of that? Not too long ago, I sort of jokingly said that I don't read the news anymore. It's too depressing. Instead, I read the book of Revelation, right? And just check, check, check. But that's only because of a proper perspective of this book. And again, the first chapter, as early as verse 3 of the very first chapter, says, blessed is he that keep the things that are written therein. Well, here's what it says in the last chapter of the book. So that was the first chapter. Here's the last chapter, verse seven. Behold, I come quickly. Blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of the prophecy of this book. Now, if you have red letter, you'll see this is Jesus speaking. But how do you do it? How do you keep the sayings of this book, the things that we've been learning all along? Well, the first way is in verse six. And he said unto me, these sayings are faithful and true. Folks, if these sayings are faithful and true, then the first thing that we have got to do in order to keep them is believe them. Trust what it says. Embrace what it says. Count on it that these things, including what we just read about the river of life, all of these things are going to happen. The second thing, the second way to keep these sayings is to live what you believe. Live like you believe it. That means you live, this whole book's about the revelation of Jesus Christ. He will be revealed to the whole world. Live like you know and you believe the hope of his coming. I mean, if the bridegroom is coming, the bride takes time to make herself ready. She prepares herself, watching witnessing, faithfully waiting. 
Verse 8, look at it. And I, John, saw these things and I heard them. And when I had heard and seen, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel which showed me these things. Then saith he unto me, see thou do it not. Don't worship me, for I am thy fellow servant. And of thy brethren the prophets and of them which keep the sayings, keep the sayings of this book. I have a question. How does an angel keep the sayings of this book? He says, I keep the sayings of this book. How, do you, how did he do it? The last two words of that verse, worship God. You know, one of the single greatest lessons that we have learned from this book, and you ought to have learned from this book, and from the fact that these things are going to happen in the future, is that man always does one of two things. Even after a thousand years of glory and the millennium, man will always do either one of two things and only one of two. He will either worship himself or he will worship God. Satan's pride and man's pride are the dark side of the book of Revelation. And of course, folks, everyone in the flesh has to battle against his own pride. Vance Havner once said that some people have so much ego, they either have to be the bride at every wedding or the corpse at every funeral. (laughs) You know, Adolf Hitler, I read some time ago, was so consumed with pride. He was searching for a chauffeur in the early days of the Reich. And he asked his lackeys if they would go through the kingdom and find one. And they had hundreds that they interviewed. And he himself came down to the last 30 candidates. And he finally selected, to their shock, the shortest man that he could find. And he kept him as his personal driver for the rest of his life. Even though that man required special blocks under the driver's seat so that he could reach the pedals and see over the steering wheel. Hitler always wanted to make himself and used people to make himself look bigger and better than he was. But what does this angel do? And what does this angel say? He says, don't you worship me. I'm a servant. Worship God. You keep the sayings of this book by worshiping and glorifying God. In fact, I've thought about this a lot, but for me, Revelation, the book of Revelation, is the greatest indictment in the universe against all human pride. Which brings us to chapter 22. I want you to notice three things specifically that are going to be found in heaven. First of all, verse three, I want you to circle, underline, or take note of two words, his servants. Verse 4, underline, circle, or just take notice, his face. And also there you'll notice in verse 4, his name. His servants, his face, his name. Now, folks, look, beside the fact that this chapter shows that Jesus is the center of all of heaven, of all of heaven's joys, if you will. After all, it's his face, it's his name, and they are his servants. But it's also a reminder of why The glory that awaits us eclipses any sufferings, heartaches, pains that we have in this present time. In other words, look, I'm not surprised, and I'm sure you're not, to find that in God's description of heaven and eternity, which we looked at last week in our study, I'm not surprised to find that the Bible says, and we read it a moment ago, there's not going to be a curse. There will be no more curse. And that there's a pure river of water of life. That there's a tree of life that has 12 manner of fruits, 
I'm not surprised to read that there's no night there, that it's always day, that the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in the midst of heaven itself. I'm not surprised by that. I'm not surprised by any of the glorious descriptions of heaven. And I'll say this, any religion, denomination that describes what they might call heaven in their, in their faith, they would describe it sort of like this in such a way. However, there's something about our future in heaven and eternity that the religions and the isms of this world would never include. Muslims don't really include what we're going to look at. The New Agers wouldn't include these. Most of Judaism didn't even include this. And yet these are really the truths about heaven and eternity that make it wonderful to contemplate, but only for the true children of the living God. What are they? Well, for example, what was the first thing we notice is his? Look again at the end of verse 3. It says, the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. Now, I want you to think about that for a minute. That's heaven. His servants shall serve him. In the Quran, heaven is an oasis. It's described as a place with date palms and, and almonds and young wives, and the man that might make it there is described as pretty much being served. The same thing, even more so, is true in the Mormon fantasy. Because there you have an entire planet, your own planet, if you do well here. And it's filled with women who do what? They serve you. Like David Koresh surrounded himself with women who served him. There's something about the founders of cults who just love the idea of being served by lots and lots of women. But it's all made up. That's all fantasy. However, from the one who descended from heaven and then ascended back into heaven, from the one who was gone, he said, he promised to prepare a place for you. It's a prepared place for a prepared people. The description of heaven is vastly different. There he says his servants will serve him. In other words, when you get to heaven, you will be employed actively in the pursuits and the accomplishments of God's holy eternal plans. Heaven is not a place where you sit around on clouds in some ephemeral thing floating. This is what Hollywood Satan wants you to believe that heaven is. It's not a place where 70 virgins serve you and feed you grapes and figs. And heaven is not a place of boredom and religious ritual and chanting. You're floating, you're gazing, self-indulgence. It's the opposite. His servants will serve him. We will be busy enjoying his commands, obeying him with vigor, praising him with love and cheerfulness. Trusting him, singing, laboring, just serving our God. But pastor, labor, servitude, sounds like hard work of all of eternity. Well, the first part of verse 3 answers that. It says, quote, there shall be no more curse. No curse, no thorns, no sweat, no vanity, no waste, no burden. Just perfect, fulfilling service to the one and the only one who's worthy of it, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. His servants. 
And then the second thing you notice about heaven and religion also finds rather odd is the reference to his face. Look at verse 4. And they shall see his face. Wow. Now I'm going to say this again. To an unbeliever, that doesn't make sense. To most religious people, you're going to see his face. That's the promise of glory. What is the significance of that? You know, the apostle Peter wrote, whom having not seen, ye love. I've not seen his face. And people wonder about that. How can you love someone you've never seen? Well, we do. Untold millions upon millions of people do. And that's what makes this promise so promising. Don't you want to see the face of the one that you love? A a mother who's carrying a child for eight months has not seen that child, but she already loves that child and can't wait to see the face of that child. This promise is so promising because the Bible says we will see his face. Once in the summer... Of 1898, Fanny Crosby was attending a Moody conference in Northfield, Massachusetts. And when Moody, and of course Fanny Crosby wrote so many of the most wonderful hymns that we love and sing. She was blind at the age of eight. And so he persuaded her, to, he found out she was out there and persuaded her to come up in her old age. And thousands of people there, she agreed. And with her cane and some assistance, she made her way up to the platform. It must have been a wonderful moment. And there she stood up and they asked her to say a word. And all she did was she quoted what she said was her own personal poem, her heart's song that no one there had yet has heard. And the poem went like this. Someday the silver cord will break. And I no more as now shall sing. But oh, the joy when I shall wake within the palace of the king. And I, she's blind, and I shall see him face to face and tell the story saved by grace. And then she then quoted Psalm 17, 15, as for me, I will behold thy face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake in thy likeness. His face, his servants. Number three, this is another one. Notice it says, his name, his name, they shall see his face, verse 4, and his name shall be in the forest. Did you ever think for a moment, have you thought during this study maybe, how many times, how often the book of Revelation emphasizes people's names? It says that Christ will give you a new name that only he knows. It says in the Bible that if you're saved, your name, your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. And then it says here, his name. His name is preeminent in glory. His name. Now ponder this. Why? Why mention his name for all of eternity? Let me remind you, Matthew 121. And the angel of the Lord said to Mary, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, to John, and thou, he shall save his people from their sins. Why? The name Jesus means savior. All right. That means that for all of eternity and everywhere in heaven and glory, we are going to be reminded by his name, by the name Jesus, exactly how we got there. We got saved. We didn't deserve to go there. We didn't earn it. That's because Jesus is our 
Savior. John 20, 31 says, these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. It says in the Bible, there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Jesus is a saving name, and we will see and say his name. Today, right now in the world, Jesus is a shamed name by many. Ever occurred to you that you watch a TV show or a movie from Hollywood, and they will say, Jesus Christ. Over and over and over. Sometimes they'll say, Jesus, put another word in there, in Christ. Or just Christ. But nobody ever cusses and just says, Muhammad. Or Joseph Smith. Oh, Krishna. This is the name that Satan hates. This is the saving name, but it's also today a shamed name. I'll remind you that it was his name placed at the top of the cross. That people still curse to this day. That will also be an eternal reminder in heaven, right along with the wounds. Remember the wounds are going to be there still for all of eternity? It will remind us of the cost of salvation. It's also, as you know, the supreme name. We noted earlier that just before we all enter the eternal state, as it says in the book of Philippians chapter 2 and verse 9, God hath given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord. For you and I, it's also a sweet name. You know, in Acts chapter 3, Peter and John were coming to the temple and they saw this paralyzed beggar. And the apostle Peter said, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Do you reckon that man ever forgot the name of Jesus? His name will be there, his face will be there, his servants will be there. And none of that is exciting to people who don't know them, know him. They don't even understand why. But to those who do know him, this is all glorious. And you know, it introduces effectively the last three great things here in the book of Revelation. This amazing book. And therefore, because they are the last things in this book, they are the last three things in the Bible itself. People often put a lot of weight on final words. What was the last thing he said? What are the last three things, Pastor? The first one you'll notice is the very last welcome. Look at verse 17, would you? And the spirit and the bride say, come. And let him that heareth say, come. And let him that is a thirst come. And whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. By the way, how fitting is it that the sacred canon of Scripture concludes with the words of the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit who inspired all of the apostles and all of the prophets who gave all of the books before this book. And what does he say? He says, come. The Spirit and the bride says, come. He says, come. And he gives, by the grace of God, the great invitation of the gospel. And I think for me it reminds us way back in the first book of the Bible, in the book of Genesis, 
It was God himself who went inside of the ark. And if you read your Bibles, it says that God said, come into the ark. It is the grandest word in all of the gospel. And those who don't heed its word to come, if you're listening in this room or by live stream, you will instead hear another word, depart. Let him that is thirsty come and take of the water of life freely. Man, this world is a wilderness. This world is a dry desert as the hot sands of Arabia are barren. But this is the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God itself and the invitation. The Bible says the last welcome in Scripture is right there. And I wish the whole world could hear it and then heed it. It's to all who are thirsty, come and drink of this well. Be saved today. The second thing is the last warning. Look at verse 18. For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book, if any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in the book. And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. And again, once again, folks, we go all the way back to Genesis. You remember? Eve sort of tampered with and Satan added to the word of God. It's interesting, we were just reminded that Revelation begins with a blessing. Those who hear and do the sayings of this book are blessed, and now it says it ends with a curse. Don't add to the words of this book. Don't take away from the words of this book. Revelation is the last book of the Bible. And like a watchman, this warning stands guard over the entire Bible. And we believe warning against anyone who would claim to have some additional revelation from God that is inspired of God outside of this book, such as we just mentioned, the Book of Mormon. The last welcome, the last warning, and then you'll notice there is the last word. What is the last word? Verse 21, the last word of all the Bible is amen. You know, the word amen simply means true. Jesus called himself the amen, truth. And of course, the statement immediately preceding the amen is a reminder of the grace of God. Look at verse 21. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Amen is the last word. Oh, yes. Satan is cast into the lake of fire and shall deceive the nations no more. Amen. Sin and sickness and sorrow shall never be known by the people of God. Amen. The tribulation period with all of its deceit, its destruction, the Bible says will no longer even be remembered and shall never ever occur again. Amen. No more night, no more tears, no more pain. And God himself shall dwell with us and we with him. Amen. But Pastor Revelation keeps saying that over and again it says that Jesus is coming, quote, soon. That these things are occurring quickly. Behold, he says, I come quickly. That was 2,000 years ago. Yep, it was. You know, we all know, we all know that Peter said, with God, a thousand years is as one day and one day is as a thousand years. I mean, that would literally mean it's been two days since John wrote this in that 
formula. But there's way more to it than that. Because the truth of the matter is, the final destiny of every single human being begins the instant that person dies. Right? So that what the apostle John did, this apostle John who gave us the book of Revelation when he was ushered in eternity, his past 2,000 years have been as two hours. So look at verse 11 for a moment, would you? He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. Now this is the end. This is the end of everything. Except for glory. And he which is filthy, let him be filthy still, eternally. And he that is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he that is holy, let him be holy still. An old pastor I knew, in fact, we just mentioned Brother Cal. Called home to heaven, you can be sure that the saints who preceded him 100 years ago, 200 years ago, 500 years ago, 2,000 years ago, they didn't say, what took you so long? No. They're like new arrivals in glory, just like Cal is a new arrival in glory. And they're all getting ready to come back with Jesus. There's a new name written down in glory for me. My name's the new name written down in glory as far as heaven is concerned, even though it was the age of 12. So then in a very real sense, he's coming in our lifetime. Think of it that way. Just as he was in John's lifetime. Okay, or more precisely, one second after our lifetime. If we die first. And for some soon generation, one second before their lifetime. Either way, Jesus is coming soon and he is coming quickly. And when that happens, all of the events described in Revelation are, quote, soon Soon to come to pass. The boys and I used to play hide and seek. You're supposed to count to 10 and say, ready now, here I come. The problem is they would always do it the same way. One, two, three, ready now, here I come. Didn't count to 10. And I'm not ready. Well, the Lord Jesus is coming and effectively, there's no countdown. He's already said, ready or not, here I come. And you know, there are three reactions to that promise. The skeptic says, yeah, right, been hundreds of years. The unbeliever says, so what? The bride says, come quickly. The ancient Romans, as you know, had a saying, carpe diem, seize the day. It's about living for today. The Christians in Rome, at the same time that the Romans were saying carpe diem, they had a saying that's in the Bible, in 1 Corinthians, Maranatha, Lord cometh. Alexander McLaren was talking to a scoffer of his day that he'd witnessed to in the past. And the skeptic asked McLaren about the second coming. And McLaren said to him, he says, do you not believe that Christ may return this very year? And the man said, I think not. Do you not believe that he could return this very hour? And the man said, I think not. And McLaren then said, in the words of Christ, therefore be also ready for in such an hour as ye think not, the Son of Man cometh. For us, his returning is to take us home. Say home, pastor? Yes. Jesus taught that with the father and the prodigal, that with great joy he embraced his prodigal son because his child had returned home. Beloved, as much as any other truth in all of the Bible, especially as we see at the beginning and the end of Revelation, as much as anything else about heaven, nothing is more prominent 
or precious than the very simple truth that heaven, if you're saved, heaven is your home. I mean, it's okay. If you want to wonder whether or not heaven has horses and crab cakes or whatever, you can wonder that. That's fine. But the one truth that's indisputable is the truth that heaven's highest joy for all of us is that we will truly be home. Now, our problem, here's our problem. Our problem in all candor is that we don't think it's home. The very, you think your home here is home. The very reason why people fear death, the idea of being separated from this life, this world, this family, which is why one of the great purposes and challenges of the Christian life, one of the great teachings of this very book of Revelation this whole summer, that growing in grace is a process of sanctification in which we do, as Paul said, we look not at the things which are seen, but we look at the things which are not seen, realizing more and more and more that heaven is home, that this earth is just our brief journey. I remember years ago, Louise and I flew up to Hartford, Connecticut to go to a Bible conference. And Dr. Lehman Strauss taught on heaven all week. And we went and saw the sights around Hartford, some place, some sea place, sea mist or something. I don't remember. All the sights. We had a good time. But you know, as always with everybody who flies away, when we got home, we were so happy to be home. Even if you just drive a long way and you come back, isn't it nice to see the Jupiter sign just like... And as soon as that plane landed at PBI, immediately, all over the plane, there was that familiar sound of seatbelts unbuckling. Everybody's just throwing them off. And of course, the guy in the intercom, he's saying, please remain seatbelts fastened and a complete stop. Nobody's listening. Nobody cares. You know why? Because they're home. The destination is not the plane. And the truth is, everybody wanted off that plane as soon as possible. Nobody said, well, well, wait, wait, I don't want to leave yet. I still have this little tiny Coke I haven't finished. and I'm going to miss this seat in aisle 21C. Give me a few more hours. I love the peanuts. Nobody says that because you want to be home. You want to be in your chair with your food, your family. And again, this is the vision that God is giving us with regards to our eternal place. Heaven is our home. Heaven is where people rejoice just over the fact that it has become your permanent and eternal address. If there's rejoicing when a sinner repents down here, if there's rejoicing in heaven, that's what the Bible says, the midst of the angels, just when a sinner down here repents and has his name written in glory, imagine the joy when he arrives where his name is written down. When Stephen arrived in Acts 7, the Lord Jesus stood up and received him home. With all of its glory and all of its splendor, with all the gold and precious stones and the fruit and the water and the fellow saints, the perfect righteousness and the eternal love, heaven is home. Heaven has there everything that we truly love here. People used to ask me what was our biggest Sunday school class. What's your biggest Sunday school class at Beacon? I always said Brother Sam's class. Now Brother Bob's class. And the reason I said that is because about a thousand of Brother Sam's class are in heaven. 
through these years. We used to have promotion Sunday, you know, third and fourth, fourth graders go to fifth grade, sixth grade come to my class. Uh, teenagers, when they go off to college, they go to the, the singles. And then we say, well, it's promotion Sunday from Brother Sam's class. Where do they go? They have only one place to go, and that's glory. <laughs> it's the biggest class of all. There are a thousand people up there. You know why? They just went home. And here's the last thing I'll say about this home. It's in verse 5. And there shall be no night there, and they shall need no candle, neither the light of the sun, for the Lord God giveth him light, and they shall reign, here it is, forever and ever. I preached a sermon years ago on the best thing about heaven. What's the best thing about heaven? It's eternal. If it wasn't eternal, if it only lasted for 100 million years, then you had to, to suffer or something. No, the best thing is that all of these promises, it says, are forever and ever. The last chapter, the last book of the Bible, God declares that heaven, as we studied two weeks ago, the new Jerusalem, our glorified state, is going to last forever and ever. In other words, this ain't no starter home. This is your eternal home. And he closes with the words, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. Father, we are grateful for your word. And Lord, I just pray that you will help us to live Because these words are faithful and true, help us to live as though we believe them. It is indictment and it is a shame when a Christian sings about heaven, talks about heaven, believes in heaven, but when they're about to cross over into glory, they almost act as if they never believed it. Lord, let that not be one of us. May we sing as Fanny Crosby, who just before she entered eternity... Rejoice that I shall see him face to face. Thank you for your word and the horrors and the trials that this world is going to endure that we studied for weeks and months. Knowing the terror of the Lord, help us to persuade men. At the same time, Lord, have faith and boldness and courage because we shall reign with him forever and ever. We thank you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. On behalf of everyone at Beacon Baptist Church, we thank you for joining us today. Our prayer is that your heart and life has been impacted through the biblical truths of this message. If you have questions or would like more information, please contact us through our website at beaconbaptistchurch.org. That's beaconbaptistchurch.org. May the Lord bless you.